since this is the second Sunday of the month, this is the time at which we celebrate communion. You know, one of the ideas behind worship is the idea of celebration. That's what we had on Friday night. Friday night was different from Bible class. It was an installation service. It was a celebration of something. And that's what worship is, is to celebrate what God has done for us. And so the Lord's table is indeed a celebration of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what is spoken of in the two elements of the communion meal. Now, you know that the elements of the communion meal did not originate at the Last Supper when our Lord met with His disciples and instituted the Lord's table. It actually has its roots in the original Passover feast that Israel celebrated in approximately 1446 B.C. when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And in that meal were incorporated the unleavened bread and the cup of wine. The unleavened bread was taken by the Lord at the Last Supper and it was invested with new meaning. The fact that it was unleavened was, had symbolic significance. Leaven in the Old Testament represented sin, and at the beginning of Passover, you also have a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And the day before Passover begins, the uh, parents go through the house and they sweep out and remove all of the leaven, and they make a ritual show of it in a, in a modern Orthodox Jewish home. And it is a sign of purification, of removing sin. It is also symbolic of what we do at the beginning of every Bible class, and that is to confess our sins. It is just as they were sanctifying the home, we are sanctifying our souls, as Jim puts it. We are recognizing the need to be cleansed from sin. So they would remove leaven from the house, and then they would uh, have the Passover meal. So leaven cannot be present in the bread because the symbolism of the bread is that it represents the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It represents his, his body, who he is. Uh, that is a different symbolism than the cup. The cup represents what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Therefore, the cup was originally a cup of wine. Some discussion has come up in some circles that, well, wasn't it grape juice? No, it was wine. You ever tried to keep grape juice to not ferment in a hot Mediterranean climate? It doesn't happen. And the Jews never understood that fermentation was leavening. Otherwise, they would never have had wine. And to this day, they would not have wine in the home once they've removed the leaven. So there was the legalistic Baptist who came along in the 19th century who decided, based on American uh, the American temperance movement that we shouldn't have uh, alcohol in church. So they changed it to grape juice, and a Baptist pastor by the name of Welch developed a process to keep, uh, to keep grape juice from fermenting, and he started a whole business that way. Legalism pays. Uh, <laughs> but the Lord's table is our opportunity to stop on a periodic basis and reflect on who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. It is that opportunity when we all recognize that there's nothing special in any one of us. 
that despite whatever talents, abilities, whatever position in life, whatever status, whatever uh, economic standing a person may have, we are all in the same boat when it comes to salvation. We are all sinners condemned before the bar of God's justice. And we must all come into the presence of God on the basis of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's real easy for us, if you haven't noticed, to slip into arrogance on occasion or two. And we tend to forget that we are all sinners saved by grace. And we all still have a sin nature and we all still fail. And the Lord's table is a great opportunity for us to stop and reflect on that. It's sort of bringing us back to ground zero once a month to recognize that we are who we are solely because of who God is and what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. In the early church, the Corinthians would come together, and in the the tradition of the early church was that the church had a meal surrounding the Lord's table, and they would, just as the Passover meal out of Jewish tradition was part of the the, uh, ritual, and then they would conclude with the uh, bread and the cup, as indication that they... uh, that it was alcoholic was that they got drunk. They wouldn't just drink a tiny little cup like we do. They had goblets, and they would come and have a big covered dish dinner and bring all the uh, kosher food, and everybody would sit around, and they would eat until they were full and just gorge themselves in gluttony, and then they would get drunk. And so as a result of that, there was divine discipline on that Corinthian congregation. And in uh, in the Lord's table... Uh, God punished them because they were, were treating it lightly. And so there were many, Paul said, who were sick and weak spiritually, and some had died the sin unto death. So there's a warning that Paul gives, that we are to examine ourselves to make sure that we are right, that we have the right attitude when it comes to the Lord's table, that we have indeed cleansed our souls from sin through the use of 1 John 1.9, which says that if we confess our sins, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, then He forgives us, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then we pass out the elements. The Lord's table is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not to be restricted by church membership or any other human factor. All that is required, all that is necessary for you to participate is that you have put your faith alone in Christ alone and are a member of the universal body of Christ. Since this is our first time to have communion together, uh, we're still working out some of the details and how we carry out the procedure. What we will do is we will have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will return thanks for the cup. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to reflect upon the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The bread that we are about to partake of represents his person, that he 
is that if he is he of whom the scripture says was without sin. He is sinless. And the scripture tells us that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. As we partake of the bread, Father, we pray that we might be mindful of the fact that it was necessary for you to send your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, uh, your Son whom you loved, your only Son, to come and enter into the human race so that he could be rejected, suffer, and die on the cross for our sins, where he paid the sin penalty that we might enjoy the benefits of that freely given to us by faith in him alone. We ask your blessing on the cup now, I mean on the bread in Christ's name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. Our Lord then took the bread. Having broken it, he passed it out to the disciples and he said, This is my body which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. The symbolism of the cup is designed to represent the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The point of analogy in the wine is the death of Christ on the cross. It is a picture of blood. It's red. It's not white wine. It's red wine. It's a picture of the shed blood on the cross. But the shed blood on the cross is actually an idiom representing his death. It's a picture of his atoning work, his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross. As we partake of the cup, we're to be mindful of that Uh, spiritual sacrifice, that time between 12 noon and 3 p.m., when the sins of every single human being were poured out upon him on the cross, when he suffered an agony that went far beyond that of the physical torture that he had endured leading up to the cross. I think this is one of the reasons why the Scriptures emphasize that he was silent like a uh, sheep being led before its shearers. And he only screamed out once he began to endure the pain of uh, bearing our sin because it was so much more horrible than anything we could ever imagine. Let us bow our heads together and give thanks for the cup. Father, we do thank you for what this cup represents in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he hung there on that cross on Golgotha, And you and your righteousness imputed to him all of the sins of the human race so that salvation was completely paid for, sins were completely paid for, so that the issue would no longer be our sin, 
the issue would be Jesus Christ. So the scripture says that the issue is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Father, we pray that we would be mindful of its significance as we partake of the cup. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Our Lord then took the cup. It was the third cup in the ritual of the Passover meal, known as the cup of redemption. And he took the cup and he said, This is the new covenant of my blood which is given for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let us stand together and we'll sing hymn number 258. When I survey the wondrous cross... The ministry of giving is part of every believer's spiritual life. It is... In many ways, it may be a barometer of our own spiritual growth. It certainly is a barometer of our gratitude towards God. For gracious giving is a response of gratitude to what God has done graciously in our own lives. Scripture says that we are to give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful, that is, a grace-oriented believer. At this time, we will... Take up a collection. It is a responsibility of every believer priest to support the local church where he is being fed, as well as to support foreign missions. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for these gifts and the giver for the spiritual growth that lies in the motivation behind the gifts. We ask your blessing on this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to ask the Lord's guidance on our study. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. We thank you for your word, for its perspicacity, for its power, for the prophecy that you have put into your word to give us an understanding of, the, of your plans and purposes in history. Now, Father, as we study the Revelation this evening, we pray that you would, that the Holy Spirit would challenge us with the things that we study and would make these things profitable for our own spiritual advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last night we began a review that will go on for three or four Sundays just to make sure we're all up to date in our understanding of Revelation. As a part of that, I'm going to be adding some new things as I've gone through this once. I'm going back, picking up some uh, threads here and there, tying them together. 
And you can expect that not only are we teaching Revelation, which has so much in it about the angelic conflict, but as I warned you when I came, the angelic conflict would intensify. Last night, all the sound went down. There's no recording from last night whatsoever. The DVD worked great, but it's a silent movie. (laughs) So we will hope that tonight things will go better. We will have sound, but... No visual. So we have to pray that the demons in the machinery will somehow get removed. When I went to Preston City, it took several months before all of that finally got worked out. And one other little thing, just to get those of you who did not go to the Dead Sea Scrolls with us today out of fellowship. We, uh, we got there this morning, and, and most of the group was there. We had a uh, entry time at 11 a.m., and there was a very large group of obviously uh, Jewish individuals who were ready to come in right behind us. You could tell because all the men had on their yarmulkes. And as we went in, we got our little headsets and our microphones, and we're listening. And after we'd been in about five minutes going from one little display to the next, Suddenly, the loud voice of their guide began to become uh, apparent. So we stopped and we began to listen to him. And during a break, I asked him a little bit about who he was. And in fact, I think I brought his card with me tonight. He is the, he's Lawrence Schiffman. He's written a book on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He's the Edelman Professor of Hebrew and Judaic Studies in the Skirball, in the Skirball Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies at NYU in New York. And he knew Randy Price and had his book as well. And so we just kind of slipped in and joined their group. And we had an excellent uh, lecture on the Dead Sea Scrolls, an introduction to the Dead Sea Scrolls, by a man who has translated some of them uh, and published some of his translations. So uh, next time you won't stay at home. (laughs) We are in our study of Revelation. Let's see where we're going here. We have to understand the overall framework of Revelation, and so this is given in our main verse, our main uh, text in Revelation 1.19. I guess it would be a good idea if I had my notes. Revelation 1.19 gives us the overall structure of Revelation. We went over this last night. We'll go over it a couple hundred more times just to make sure you don't forget it. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen. When this is said, the events of chapter 1 are almost over with. That refers to chapter 1. The things which are, that is, those things that are taking place present time, the church age. This refers to chapter 2 and 3. The things which will take place after these things, that's the future from chapter 4 on. So chapter 1 focuses on the glorified Christ who returns in a vision for the Apostle John and is going to commission him to write these things. It's a vision of Jesus, not as our priest intercessor, but as the risen Lord Jesus Christ, as the priest judge, moving in the midst of the churches. That's why he's walking in the midst of those seven golden lampstands. Chapters 2 and 3 are the outworking of his judicial ministry to the church in the church age. And these two chapters represent 
or seven churches that represent the trends in the church age. At the end of chapter 3, the church is raptured. This is indicated by 4.1 when John hears a voice that says, uh, a voice from heaven that says, come up here and I will show you the things that will take place after these things. Not the things that already took place at the destruction of Jerusalem. See, there are some folks who want to come along and try to say, oh, all this is just code language for 70 A.D. It's called preterism. We'll get there if you haven't studied it with me already. Chapters 4 to 22 are yet future in the uh, post-rapture period. The chapters 4 through 19 describe the horrific judgments of the tribulation period as God purifies the human race and prepares the human race for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in chapter 19. And chapter 20 describes his kingdom, known as the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ, when Jesus Christ reigns literally from the throne of David in Jerusalem, at the end of which there's the great white throne judgment, and then the present heavens and earth are destroyed, and we have a new heavens and new earth, the eternal state described in chapters 21 through 22. So all you need to remember is those three things, the things which... Uh, have been the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. You, if you've said that, you've given the structure of Revelation. You can easily summarize Revelation. You just have to say, we win, they lose. You got the whole book. See, then everything else is just filling in the gaps. We're in chapter 1, which is the things that have been. Uh, the things that were, as in 119. If we're to outline it, the prologue is the first uh, actually, the first eight verses, that's a typo there. The prologue is the first eight verses, divided into four sections. The preface, verses 1 through 3, which gives us a brief introduction that this is the revelation from Jesus Christ that God gave him to disclose to the saints. That's the meaning of revelation, the Greek word apocalypsis, meaning an unveiling or a disclosure. Uh, there's a salutation in verses 4 and following when John once again identifies himself as the author. There's the theme stated in verse 7, which we'll get to hopefully this evening, and authentication in verse 8. We have communion this evening, and so we're running a little long, but we have some special events afterwards, so I don't know how far we will get in this review, but you may have to strap on your seatbelt. You're in for a fast ride. But I'm assuming that many of you have gone through this, and this is review. If you haven't, you can order the tapes or download the messages from uh, Dean Bible Ministries. The new website is up and operational. Revelation 1.1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, corrected translation, which God gave him to show or to disclose to his servants things which must take place in a rapid manner, literally. And he communicated it by sending his angel. You always have this dynamic of angelic involvement. I will almost belabor this point to boredom. Angels are used again and again and again as mediators in carrying out both revelation and divine judgment in the book of Revelation. You can't get away from that. He communicated it by sending his angel to... His servant John. Now, John then states his task that he bore witness, a legal term indicating that we must understand this within the overall scope 
of what we refer to as the appeal trial of Satan in the angelic conflict. Now, that's a new title. If that's a new term for you, in about another week or two, I will start doing an extensive review of the appeal trial of Satan to set us up for what's happening in the angelic realm in Revelation. He bore witness to the Word of God, that is, the revelation from God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Once again, you have this technical legal term. Bearing witness and giving testimony is the act of a giving a deposition in a courtroom case. And he goes on to say to all things that he saw. He is a faithful communicator of this revelation. Verse 3 gives us a blessing. Blessed is he who reads anagonosko. Anagonosko doesn't mean to simply sit down and read in your morning devotions. It means to explain, to read out loud, actually to read out loud, but in our context that means to explain it, to exegete it. Then we come to the salutation itself in verses 4 through 6. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. This is not... East Asia, that is China, India, Burma, South Vietnam. This is the Roman proconsular province of Asia, located on the western uh, part of Turkey. Here's a map. We'll see some more pictures of some of these sites as we get to them in chapters 2 and 3. Last summer, uh, we had the privilege to go to Ephesus, which is the first of these sites. And Ephesus looked a lot like the hill country, only hotter. In early July, it was 117 degrees and very dry. So this is the location. These seven churches represent the churches in the church age. Now, John says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. This is your standard greeting in Christian letters, in Christian epistles. It is the indication that grace comes only from God and grace precedes peace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is His unearned kindness towards man. We don't earn or deserve anything. Salvation is not based on who we are or what we do. It's based on what, who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We must always respond to God's grace before we can have peace. What Paul and the other writers of Scripture did was to take these two common greetings. The common greeting of the Greek was Karain, Greece, hello, that's how he said hello. And for the common greeting of the Jew was Shalom. The writers of Scripture, under inspiration of Scripture, combined these so that they had a meaning that was greater than the sum of the parts. You can only have true peace because you have responded to the grace of God in accepting the free offer of salvation. And then we have the source, the origin of this revelation. And it is given in a Trinitarian formula. The first person of the Trinity, God the Father, is described as Him who is and who was and who is to come. Then the Holy Spirit is identified as the seven spirits who are before His throne. This is a phrase taken from Zechariah indicating the full-orbed ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Then we come to the fifth verse. Let me skip back. The fifth verse, which identifies the third person, and we have two, three verses that focus on the ministry of Jesus Christ. Where's the emphasis? And when I teach Bible study methods, I always tell students you have to look at 
at repetition, and you have to look at emphasis. When the Holy Spirit elaborates on a point for two or three verses, that's your, your emphasis. When you find a statement or a phrase repeated uh, uh, even twice, pay a lot of attention to that because the Holy Spirit is very economic in the way he uses his words, and he doesn't repeat himself very often. In fact, there's one verse in Proverbs that's repeated twice. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. Now, why do you suppose that would be repeated verbatim two times in Proverbs? So we're told that this is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And then you have two triplets. John is fond of triplets, that is, threefold phrases in his writing of Revelation. So first we have Jesus Christ identified as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And then there is a dedication to him who loved us, washed us from our sins by means of his own blood, and made us a kingdom and priest to our God. To him be the glory and dominion forever. Amen. Well, let's look at the structure here. When it comes to Jesus, we're told that this is from Appa plus the genitive indicating ultimate source. This is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, I've structured this on the slide so that you would see that these three titles are seen as equal. He is the faithful witness. This describes his ministry during the first advent. He was a witness in the appeal trial of Satan. His life is a witness to the integrity of God. And he is faithful. Second, he is said to be the firstborn from the dead. This refers to his resurrection after the accomplishment of salvation. Therefore, it stands for the entire work of salvation accomplished on the cross. He is the firstborn from the dead because he has conquered sin and death by means of his work on the cross. And third, he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. This is a proleptic use. That word means it's looking to the future. Okay? You can learn a few little vocabulary words here. He is not actually the ruler over the kings of the earth right now because he is seated at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. But he will activate that title. It is his potentially, but not actually. He will not activate that title until the return at the end of the second coming when he returns. And you see that title emblazoned on him, the King of kings and Lord of lords, at which time he conquers the kingdoms of the world, and defeats Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and establishes the Messianic kingdom. And then there's a dedication to him who loved us and washed us from our own sins in his blood, made us a kingdom and priest to our God. Now, one thing I want to point out is the structure here in the Greek. In these two verses, which indicates that this is not three different ways of talking about Jesus. You know, some people get confused because in verse verse 4 it says that uh, this is from the one who is and who was and who is to come. And they scratch their heads and they say, well, this book ends with the coming of Jesus, so that must be who this refers to. How can this phrase, who is to come, be a reference to God the Father? And last night I went through several verses 
in Revelation and it uh, in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 11 Revelation chapter 21 you have these references where you have God and the lamb you have the Lord God almighty and the lamb you have two personages and yet the one who's sitting on the throne is the one who is called the one who was and who is and who is to come four different times in the book of Revelation. So that must say something about the Father coming. And this is indicated in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and following, that He, God, will tabernacle or dwell among us and establish His temple among us in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will see His face in Revelation chapter 22. See, no one at this point, no one has seen God the Father at any time. It is the only begotten, the unique Son of God that has explained Him. So in the book of Revelation, the Father is also coming. So He is the one who is to come. And this is indicated with the Greek structure. You have the uh, introduction, grace and peace, the salutation, from. This is the Greek word, apa. It's used three times with each individual. That indicates that there are three distinct individuals. If they were three different titles of the same person, the preposition would only be used one time. So we have, and they're, and they're linked by the conjunction chi. So you have God the Father is He who is and who was and who is to come. You have the Spirit who is identified under the title of the seven spirits who are before His, that is God the Father's throne. And third, Jesus Christ identified as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So this is our salutation. It adds a heavy note of seriousness and somberness to this introduction. This book that bears a blessing in the first chapter and warns of a curse for mishandling it in the last chapter is serious. I heard one pastor one time say, well, I'll never preach through Revelation because people just want to hear it because they want to have their emotions stimulated and their curiosity satisfied about future things. Well... That just showed that that pastor had a very shallow understanding of the book of Revelation. That may be true. That's why a lot of people come out, because they want to find out what's going to happen next. But this book is a rich study in a lot of different doctrines, not the least of which is going to be a study of worship. Because when we get to chapter 4 and 5 and other chapters later on, we see a picture of the angels... In heaven, the church and Old Testament saints worshiping before the throne of God. And we will begin to develop from the text a sound concept of what biblical worship is all about, as well as understanding the a theology of singing, because that is indeed what takes place before the throne as they sing praises to God. Now, Jesus Christ is referred to as the faithful witness, hab martus, hab pistus. He is not simply the witness, but he is the faithful witness. Only God is faithful. This is a clear reference to his deity. 
Jesus Christ or the deity of Jesus Christ was not something that the Emperor Constantine cooked up in 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea to unite and uh, uh, unite the Roman Empire and provide a power base for him. This is the popular theory that is being promoted in the Da Vinci Code, and I will mention that again and again until you're probably sick of it. But this is going to be a hot issue next year. You have uh, Ron Howard production team going to produce that movie, and uh, uh, Tom, uh, what's his name? Well, I can't remember. What? Tom, what's his name? Tom Hanks, that's right. Just drew a blank. Tom Hanks is going to play the main character. This is going to be a major, major blockbuster movie, extremely popular. And the whole theme of the movie is to, and the whole idea of the book is to destroy Christians' confidence in the canonicity of Scripture, in the deity of Christ, and in anything that he did. And this book in paper, I mean, in hardback form has been out now for year and a half, maybe a year and three quarters, sold over six million copies. I can't remember a hardback book that's sold like that. It is a book that is a sign of the times, folks, and I don't mean that eschatologically. It signifies what's happening in our generation. It resonates with people because people today don't want there to be a God who exists or a God who has entered into or interfered with human history. And this gives them a rationale for justifying their negative volition, their rejection of God. But it's also going to provide a tremendous opportunity for us to talk about Jesus. But in order to talk about Jesus, with this, to anybody who's read this, you have to talk intelligently about Jesus. You have to know what these issues are. And that's why you need to go back. If you haven't, you need to listen to that series I did on Who is Jesus last year. Listen to those tapes on the Da Vinci Code. And there's two or three books written by Christians. Now, you need to study those so you can be a well-prepared witness in your evangelism. It's not just enough to slap somebody up the side of the head with the gospel and say, well, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Because what they're hearing is there's no reason to. And they're going to say, give me a reason for this hope or confidence that is in you. And 1 Peter 3.15 says that we are to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. So we have to become more sophisticated. I think Christians today have a much more difficult time than believers 30, 40, or 50 years ago. Not that the issues have really changed, but I think that with the advent of television, news, satellite, the mass production of books and information, uh, all of the material that's available on the Internet, that this is a time that, that the unbeliever is much more sophisticated than any other time in history. He's heard more the, the challenges to Christianity. And frankly, believers are a lot more sophisticated than they were uh, 30 or 40 years ago. They have access to more information and consequently, they have greater questions. So we need to recognize that, that this, our Lord, is that the deity of Christ is something that goes back to the Old Testament. Identifying him as the faithful witness recalls the Old Testament passage of Lamentations 3.21, talking about God uh, and his mercies. The Lord's uh, compassions indeed never, se- never cease, or his loving kindnesses never cease, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. 
In 1 Corinthians 1.9, we're told God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. It is God who's faithful, not man, in the Scriptures. And finally, Revelation 19.11, when Jesus returns on a white horse, He who sat on Him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Faithfulness is an indication of his, of his deity. Next he is called the firstborn from the dead. This is a title of Christ in reference to his resurrection. Passages such as Colossians 1.18 utilize this term. He is the first fruit according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Acts 26.23 says that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Uh, also, Romans 1.4, I'm just going to s- skip through these without reading them all. You can uh, check some of these a little later. Uh, third, he's called the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is a title that he will not activate until the second coming. Right now, Satan is still the uh, prince of the power of the air and the god of this age. But this title, Ruler of the Kings of the Earth, goes back to the Old Testament. See, you can't understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. The early Christians in Acts didn't just pop up and say, wow, isn't this great? When Peter preached to them, he preached out of the Old Testament. When Paul wrote those famous lines to, to Timothy and said that all Scripture is breathed out by God. He's not talking about Acts and Romans. He's talking about Genesis to Malachi. Look at the context. So we have to know the Old Testament. You have to know the difference between Malachi and Nahum. You have to know where Habakkuk is in the Song of Solomon. And you have to know the key players and the difference between Mephibosheth and Mehershalal Hashbaz. It's a sign of the poverty of the modern evangelical church that most of those names and books that I just mentioned kind of fly past you and you don't know them. Maybe we ought to start singing those songs the kids sing with the books of the Bible just so all the adults will know all the Old Testament books and all the New Testament books. talked about prep school last night, and one of the things that I want to see in prep school is is sword drill. It's a game, it's fun, but it teaches everybody where the books of the Bible are. And if, you, if you're going to make the Bible usable, you should know how to get around in the Bible. Psalm 89 talks about not only Jesus' firstborn, it's prophetic, but is the highest of the kings of the earth. And then Revelation 1.5 describes Jesus as the one who loved us, New King James and King James, but in the New American Standard NIV, it has loves us and washed us from our sins. And then we have an instrumental dative by means of his own blood. This is the means of our salvation. Now, last night I pointed out that there are some textual problems now and then in Revelation. We're not sure. Uh, we are sure what the text says, but there are different words in different uh, manuscripts. Some say to him who loves us. And those few manuscripts that were used as a basis for translating the King James had a past tense of agapao there, and so it was translated, loved us. 
But actually, it should be loves us. It's emphasizing the ongoing love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. The love that God demonstrated on the cross when He sent His Son to die for you, He is demonstrating to you day in and day out in your spiritual life. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is always faithful even when we are faithless. You can always depend upon Him even when we are undependable, and that is because He is the one who loves us. And because of His love for us, it began with His work on the cross. This is the classic demonstration of what love is. And there again we have another textual problem in the in the Greek, the copier either added a letter or took out a letter. So I wrote this up on the overhead so you could see the difference. Some manuscripts have the top word, which is lusanti, L-U-S-A-N-T-I. Other manuscripts have lusanti, pronounced the same way, L-O-U-S-A-N-T-I. But one means to wash and one means to release. So which is it? Both fit the context. So you have to compare manuscripts. The first word comes from luo, meaning to release, and we are certainly freed and released from our sins. That's true. And the second is luo, L-O-U-O, which means to wash. And that is the imagery that is used many times in Scripture, that we are washed or cleansed from our sins by means of His blood. And I believe that the uh, better reading here is to wash. As uh, that we are washed from our sins, removed from them by means of His blood, that is, the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. Now, that term blood is a word that really challenges a lot of people. They think it refers to the literal blood of Jesus. And many of you know that there was a medieval uh, heresy that that the angels scooped up all of the shed, literal shed blood of Jesus, carried it to heaven, poured it out on a heavenly altar. That completely misses the whole emphasis of this metaphor. And I have a quote here that I thought uh, some would like to hear, just to show that this isn't something that my interpretation isn't just made up out of whole cloth. This is from a book by E.W. Bullinger called Figures of Speech in the New Testament. It's about three to four inches thick. And I remember in Hebrew class in seminary on exegesis of Psalms, poetry, poetic literature is filled with figures of speech, that I just about broke the spine of that book because you were in it every single day for hours. Bullinger says of this figure, quote, in the New Testament, the expression, the blood of Christ, is the figure metalepsis. Now, most of you have no clue what that is, because all you were ever taught in school was that there were similes and there were metaphors. See how horrible your secular modern education is? If you have, all you had was similes and metaphors, where did he get the other 900 pages in that book? Okay, it's the figure metalepsis, because first the blood is put by synecdoche. See, a metalepsis is two different figures of speech joined together. One is synecdoche. It's put by synecdoche for bloodshedding, i.e. the death of Christ as distinct from his life. And then his death is put or substituted for the perfect satisfaction made by his life. 
for all the merits of the atonement affected by it. That is, it means not merely the actual blood corpuscles. Now, I would disagree with the not merely. Neither does it mean his death is an act, but the merits of the atonement affected by it and associated with it. See, it stands for something. It is a physical representative of a spiritual reality because the penalty for death, the penalty for sin was spiritual death. Physical death is a consequence. Suffering is a consequence. Sickness is a consequence. Thorns and thistles are a consequence. These are all the consequences of sin listed in Genesis 3. Shedding of blood is clearly a metaphor in Scripture for violent death. This is seen in Genesis 9-6, the basis for capital punishment. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. See, this is an emphasis. I'm going to skip some of these quotes I have here. It's an emphasis on the violent nature of the blood doesn't mean that that the person had to die by shedding blood. What if you poison them? What if you strangle them? Wouldn't that be still be murder? Sure it would. But it's ca- captured in that figure of speech, the shedding of blood. Revelation 1.6, He has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever. And ever. Jesus Christ made us kings. This is what we will do. We will rule and reign with Him. This focuses on our future ministry. This is why we need to live today in light of eternity. Revelation 5.10 says that you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. But not only that, Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. That's us literally an inheritance in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God. Now, there's a challenging idea that I'm wrestling with. Not only is there going to be a resurrection of the Zedekite priesthood in the function of the millennial temple during the millennium, but there is also going to be a function of church-age believers that is a priestly function in the millennial kingdom. Now remember, a prophet is someone who takes God's word, communicates it to man. A priest functions as a go-between between man and God. How are we as church-age believers in resurrection bodies functioning as priests in the millennial kingdom? I don't know. This is the only reference to it, and as you can tell, descriptions about it are rather lacking. So we'll have to do a lot of thinking and study before we get to that particular point. And then in verse 6, where Paul ends with, I mean, excuse me, John ends with the statement, To him, that is Jesus Christ, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that word dominion is an interesting word, kratos. And it's used again in Revelation 2.1 of the power and authority of Jesus over the angels of the churches. He holds uh, over there we're told that he holds the, in Revelation 2.1, the seven angels in his hand. And it's a word for having them under power. There it's the verb, uh, krateo. Interesting how these words link together. It's just like a daisy chain. You've got to know the original languages so you can tie these things together, string them together 
because that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to notice. Okay, the last verse, Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is not a reference to the rapture when Jesus comes in the clouds. This is a reference to the second coming when he comes with literally the clouds. There's an article in the Greek. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Coming with the clouds indicates the coming of judgment. Joel 2, uh, Zechariah, other passages indicate that when Jesus comes at the second coming in judgment, he will be enveloped in clouds and there will be clouds of doom on the earth. The phrase, every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, comes out of Zechariah and is, an in, and it is a reference the, the phrase, even they who pierced him, is of the Jews. Every eye will see him references all of humanity. Even, that is, as a subgroup of that whole. Even they who pierced him. And this indicates that the Jews will finally recognize that Jesus is the Messiah when he returns. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And we will finish there this evening. Uh, next Sunday we'll come back, look at the statement of authority in verse 8 related to the Father. There are too many details in that to, to uh, take the time with tonight, so I want to wait and cover that next time as we set up for the giving, the commission to John to write on the Isle of Patmos in verse, eight, uh, verse 9 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to uh, recognize the seriousness of the nature of this revelation. There's a warning to us that the time is near, a recognition that even though we are believers and we are saved and have an eternal destiny, there is still a time of accountability for us. And this revelation is designed to bring us up short, to capture our attention, to make us realize that, that we must be serious about our own spiritual life because we are being prepared to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. At this time, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of changing your life, bargaining with God, uh, somehow entering into some ritual that impresses God with your uh, piety. It is a matter of appropriating the perfect righteousness of Christ. And this is only done by trusting in Him alone. This is your opportunity to determine that eternal destiny by trusting in Him for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.